From Idaho to New Jersey, Oregon to Oklahoma, this is American Radio Journal. On this edition, the national debt has hit its authorized limits, so now a debate is underway over raising that ceiling and slowing the growth in spending. Phil Kirpin of American Commitment is here to discuss. Energy is on the agenda as Congress considers the Lower Energy Cost Act, which would streamline the permitting process. Scott Parkinson from the Club for Growth has the real story. In the aftermath of the East Palestine-Ohio train derailment, a number of new regulations are being proposed, and some are very bad ideas. Eric Baim of Reason Magazine reports. And support for Ukraine is a matter of national security and should not become a partisan football. Colin Hanna explains why on this week's American Radio Journal Commentary. I'm Loman Henry, and welcome to American Radio Journal. The federal government has hit the nation's debt ceiling, and now Congress must act to increase that ceiling to prevent a major disruption in service. At issue is what spending reforms will be included in any bill to raise the debt ceiling. Here to talk about it is Phil Kirpin. He is president of American Commitment. Phil, welcome back to American Radio Journal. Phil, we have this whole issue of the nation having reached its debt ceiling. Tell us a bit about this debt ceiling. How did it come about? Why is it that we've hit it? And are there really serious implications? The debt ceiling is the statutory limitation on the total indebtedness of the United States government. I believe the current one is $31.5 trillion. And uh, some of that is not debt held by the public. It's debt held by the Social Security Trust Fund, so it's money the government owes to itself. But most of it, about $25 trillion, is debt that's held by the public. And uh, the Treasury cannot incur additional debt beyond that limit unless Congress acts. Of course, the government runs a very substantial deficit, and therefore... At some point, when they exhaust what they call extraordinary measures, which is basically borrowing out of the different pots of money that the Treasury controls and kind of uh, pushing things around on paper, at some point, the government would not be able to make good on all of its obligations. Uh, The idea that they'd actually default on the debt is a myth. Uh, There's more than enough money coming in that the the bondholders would be paid. Uh, But you'd have a lot of government operations shut down. You'd have contracts not being paid. You would have essentially sort of a super shutdown, very chaotic shutdown. And so the question is not uh, whether the debt ceiling is going to be raised. Uh, I don't think many people think the budget could be immediately balanced this year, uh, which is what you would need to do to avoid raising it. The debate is between Republicans who say, okay, if we need to have the American people authorize a higher national debt, we need to change the path that we're on. We need to fix the impending debt crisis, not stay on the path that CBO says is going to raise that $30 trillion to $50 trillion in 10 years. So we'll do it, but it's got to be in the context of spending reductions and reforms that actually solve the problem versus the Democrat position, which is just raise it and change nothing. Business as usual, just just add more to the debt. So that's really the uh, dividing line, the partisan dividing line. The Senate is kind of on the sidelines. Uh, Negotiations have started between the President and the Speaker of the House, uh, but they do not seem to have advanced very much. And so that's kind of where we still are. The, The date where Treasury exhausts its extraordinary measures is 
sort of a, a floating target, a moving target at this point. It looks like it's probably more likely to be in the fall than in the summer, which means all of this could be wrapped together in sort of one giant spending deal, possibly along with appropriations. But the attention of Washington, D.C. has mostly been on other issues lately, and so I, there hasn't been a great deal of progress on these negotiations. Have we been in this situation in the past where we've hit the debt ceiling and there has been disagreement between Congress and the president as to how to proceed? We've had a lot of these confrontations in the past. And in fact, every major deficit reduction deal going back to the 1980s has revolved around the debt ceiling. And so, you know, a lot of people say that the debt ceiling is a terrible mechanism and uh, ineffective. and and, And all of that is true. I think you could design much, much better spending limitation mechanisms. Uh, I, I could think of many that would be superior to just having a limitation on the national debt. But the debt ceiling has the virtue of being the debt limitation mechanism that we actually have. It's the one we have, and uh, therefore it's the one that can be used as leverage to try to change the fiscal trajectory. And I think it would be a shame to miss that opportunity because you know, I don't know when we're going hit, to hit an acute debt crisis, but if we don't change the path we're on, it will happen sooner or later, and and maybe sooner rather than later uh, when you look at the latest projections. Speaking of that national debt, Phil, over the last few years, particularly with all the excessive spending over the COVID-19 pandemic, that debt has skyrocketed, It has it not? Yeah, we had a huge bulge in spending uh, related to COVID. And of course, when we have these sort of these crises where the government dramatically expands its size, it comes back down somewhat, but never back to where it was before. And that's kind of the story of the the growth of the federal government. Usually it's wars or economic depressions. This time it was a pandemic, but no question that was a a huge blow. But I think it was potentially an instructive episode uh, for the American people because uh, there was such a clear connection between the federal government increasing spending by about five or six trillion dollars, the Federal Reserve financing about 90 percent of that through printed money and the inflation that we saw within a couple of years. And so I think that because the amount of spending was so enormous and the timeline was so compressed, uh, the consequences were much more visible to people than they typically are. And so I'm hoping that uh, the lesson can be learned from that to prevent us going down a path where that becomes a chronic condition and we have 7 8% inflation every year as far as the eye can see. You mentioned the fact, Phil, that this issue sort of has taken the back burner here as other things have come to the fore in recent weeks, but it's still there. The House in particular, have you heard or has there been any specific reforms suggested or proposed as part of this? Yeah, they put out a list of uh, what I would call sort of low-hanging fruit, things like uh, rescinding the unobligated balances from those COVID spending bills, putting a work requirement on the food stamp program, canceling the student loan bailouts of the president. It's a pretty good list, but it's also relatively small in the context of the fiscal challenges that we face. And so I think that they probably have a more aggressive list that they're trying to use in private negotiations with the president, uh, but they're a little bit uh, hesitant to be public about prior to a deal because they don't want to be you know, attacked politically. So they, they have put some things out there, uh, things I think are very easy to defend, but I'm hoping that they've got bigger ambitions than that. All of this, of course, as you mentioned, being pushed toward the late summer or fall. We also have a new federal budget due October 1st. That rarely happens. Does all of this coming together at that time increase the possibility there could be some sort of a shutdown this year? Yeah, I think that, uh, look, anytime you've got divided government, 
there's a possibility of having a shutdown. And this year we've got sort of a double possibility, right, because we've got the usual shutdowns that we've seen in the past that could happen around an appropriations lapse, but we also have this possibility of having this kind of cash management type shutdown debt ceiling, extraordinary measures are exhausted. And so, and, and those could happen around the same time also. So it could be like a, a, a double whammy, double shutdown situation. We have been talking with Phil Kirpin. Phil is president of American Commitment. And Phil, tell us just a bit about American Commitment. Also, where can folks go to read the writings that you have on this and many other topics as well? Uh, AmericanCommitment.org is the website. And uh, we try to stay on top of all of the most important fiscal, economic, and regulatory issues where where people with a little bit more information can can maybe make a difference and tip some of these outcomes in a more free market direction. Phil Kirpin of American Commitment. Phil, thank you for being back with us. All right, Loman, have a good one. At the Club for Growth, Scott Parkinson is keeping a very close eye on what is happening on Capitol Hill. We have energy as our issue this week. Scott, good to have you here. Well, it's great to be back, Loman. Thanks again. Energy, such an important issue, Scott. It's designated as House Resolution Number 1. Want to tell us what Republicans in the U.S. House of Representatives want to do relative to America's energy future? Whenever you have a brand-new Congress, H.R. 1 is typically the top-line messaging bill that the new majority wants to use. In 2019, when Democrats took over Congress, and they did the same bill in in 2021. They did the For the People Act, and that was a bill basically to reform the way that campaign finance issues and free speech are are dealt with at the federal level. But this bill, H.R. 1, for the Republican House majority, is called the Lower Energy Cost Act, and this is sponsored by Majority Leader Steve Scalise, and obviously most of the conference is on board with this bill and voting for it. So we have to kind of unpack the details and understand what the top-line message that the new House majority is trying to talk about. I know whenever we travel throughout the country or when you, when you talk to your long-lost cousin or, or maybe just a, an old college friend across the country, one of the things that often comes up is, how's the weather? Well, the other thing that usually comes up is, what are gas prices like? Because even though it's sort of like a passive part of a, of a typical conversation you have with people, it's something that everybody's constantly paying attention to. And I think that that's why it's important for H.R. 1, the Lower Energy Costs Act, to have passed the House of Representatives this week. The House is working to restore American leadership by increasing the production and export of American energy, and they're also working very hard to reduce the regulatory burdens that make it harder to build major infrastructure in America through comprehensive permitting reforms. Taking a look at this, Scott, Republicans seem to be more than open to reducing regulatory burdens for so-called alternative energy sources, adopting sort of an all-of-the-above approach. But the left appears still bent on having a war against fossil fuels. Is there really any room for discussion here? Well, you would hope that there would be, especially because we went from energy independence to an energy crisis. And one of the things that H.R. 1 does is it reforms the National Environmental Policy Act. Some people kind of know this as a shorthand version called NEPA. And this is the most litigated environmental statute that really slows down and costs millions of dollars in energy and infrastructure projects 
that are necessary to grow the economy. And so NEPA has been around for a really long time. If you think about how long does it take to go from zero to 60 in a construction project, usually it's really, really slow because of NEPA. And so this bill is going to streamline and simplify the permitting process for all federally impacted projects, speeding up the construction from everything from those pipelines that I think you were basically referencing to, to even the transmission of water infrastructure. Since this is likely going to be dead on arrival in the Senate, Scott, what is it that can be done to restart the production of energy? You know, we've had the Keystone XL pipeline shut down. The president hasn't been open to expanding more tapping of our natural gas and oil resources, but we need the energy. So what can be done? Well, obviously, we need a grassroots movement to put pressure on the United States Senate to get something done. I do think there's some Democrats that are interested in having those permitting reforms to to basically free up critical minerals or other natural resources that are within their congressional district or within their state. And so I I think that's definitely on the table. But the H.R. 1 bill, that's more of a comprehensive approach an all-the-above approach when it comes to the energy, commerce, natural resources, transportation and infrastructure elements that, that really drive our energy security. The other thing that I would, I would point out, Loman, is the Democrats in 2021, they passed a couple of, of big bills. And loaded within those bills, the Inflation Reduction Act and the Bipartisan Infrastructure Project was really crony capitalism that targeted taxpayer dollars toward environmental Green New Deal-type policies. And I think that we're facing the consequence of that right now. Obviously, people want to talk about, well, gas prices actually have decreased about a dollar per gallon nationally. Well, we're about to hit next month, right? We're in April now. We're going to be hitting next month a brand-new season of Uh, energy crisis because the increase in demand is going to skyrocket when we hit the summer seasons and people get out of school and they start to travel throughout the country. It's still sort of a priority for the American family to pile up into that uh, so-called station wagon and travel and see parts of the country that they want to take their family to. And I think that when demand increases in May and June, we're going to see gasoline prices once again climb back over the $4 a gallon range nationally. And so you need that pressure on the United States Senate. You need that pressure on the Biden administration to begin to address these permitting reforms, to begin to free up the regulatory structure, to begin to increase production. And that's only going to happen when people start to get angry about the bottom line in their own costs. What happens when when gas prices increase? Well, obviously the food prices increase as well because the the semi-trucks that are transporting food to grocery stores, that price and that cost increases. So I think that everything is interconnected here through energy in America. And we'll continue to keep an eye on this energy issue, along with many other key issues facing our nation, with Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth. Scott, tell us a bit about the club. Club for Growth is the leading economic 
issue advocacy organization in America. We're united in economic freedom, economic liberty, and economic opportunity. If anybody wants to learn more about the club, you can actually join over 500,000 people from America in signing up for free at clubforgrowth.org. Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth. Thank you, Scott. We'll talk with you next week. Okay, thank you. As happens after most high-profile accidents, the East Palestine, Ohio train derailment has sparked new calls for more regulation. Eric Baim of Reason Magazine takes a look at some of those ideas. After the East Palestine train disaster, there's a new bipartisan bill moving through Congress sponsored by two Ohio senators, one Republican and one Democrat, J.D. Vance and Sherrod Brown. And the bill is aimed at improving railroad safety, a noble goal, but it also includes a bunch of things that unions in particular have been seeking for years that wouldn't really do anything to have prevented the Ohio train disaster. Hi, folks. I'm Eric Bain with Reason Magazine. Thanks for joining us on this edition of American Radio Journal. This week, we're taking a look at one of the congressional responses. There's a couple of different bills out there, actually, but this seems to be the one that has the most support, the most momentum in Congress. Uh, One of these bills that is aiming at uh, changing some of the regulations that govern American railroads. Of course, that that freight train derailment and the the subsequent fire and the big plume of smoke and the the controlled burns that were done of some of those toxic chemicals there, uh, an ugly scene in Ohio, no doubt about it, and certainly a situation that industry, that government, all of the parties involved should try to avoid repeating, if at all possible. Not a thing that anyone wants to see happen again. And we have this bipartisan group of senators now, not just Vance and Brown, they're the two lead sponsors, but a number of Republicans and Democrats have signed on to this bill as well. This bill that they say would overhaul safety regulations for American railroads. But the bill includes, perhaps unsurprisingly, because this is the way things happen in Washington, a number of provisions that really have nothing to do with that accident in Ohio. Instead, the bill would deliver a costly new union-favored mandate to the railroad industry and, as a result, would make it more expensive to ship goods across the country for the trade-off here being really little or actually no safety benefit whatsoever. So tucked into this 18-page bill, the Railway Safety Act, is a provision mandating that, quote, no freight train may be operated without a two-person crew, two people in the engine. Now, this is something that I've covered before at Reason, and it's something that railroad unions have been trying to get the federal government to mandate for years because the unions see uh, increased railroad automation as a threat to their jobs. You go back to 2008, That's when Congress mandated that all major rail systems in the United States adopt something called positive train control. Essentially, it's a computer-based override system that monitors speed and track signals to avoid collisions. This this is a good thing. It makes trains much safer, and indeed, the number of injuries, the number of accidents on American railroads has fallen dramatically in recent decades, not just because of positive train control, but because of other similar adaptations, technological advances that have made trains safer to operate, in large part because we've removed the human error element out of it. And I think one of the best pieces of evidence for the fact that trains can operate safely with just one person running the train is Amtrak, which literally carries live human beings on their trains, of course, all over the country. And uh, Amtrak has operated 
without this two-person in the crew rule uh, since the 1980s. It's actually been decades since Congress got rid of that requirement for Amtrak. So anyway, more highly automated trains are both safer and cheaper. So Vance and Brown's bill would be imposing an expensive new rule on freight trains. And it would be doing this supposedly in the name of safety, a rule that already, as we covered, doesn't apply to passenger trains in the United States. And a rule that, at least the way the unions and these lawmakers would frame it, is about safety of the trains, preventing derailments. Now, here's the inconvenient fact. The train that derailed in East Palestine, Ohio last month actually had three crew members on board, three people in the engine, just because sometimes that's the way things work with railroads. You got to move people around from different places. So there were actually three guys on that train, and that, of course, didn't prevent that derailment. The investigation into the accident is still ongoing, but all indications so far point to two causes that worked in tandem to cause that derailment, neither of which had anything to do with the number of people driving the train. The primary cause was an overheated wheel bearing, which failed and caused the train to derail as the crew was attempting to bring it to a stop after being alerted to the potential problem. The secondary cause was a possible delay in getting that information to the crew. At least one trackside sensor that was meant to look for overheated wheels, these are things known as hotbox detectors in the rail industry lingo, Uh, At least one of those along the train's route did not function properly and the crew didn't get the alert about the problem in time. By the time they did get that alert, it was too late. They were trying to bring the train to a stop when it derailed. Now, those hotbox detectors aren't infallible, obviously, but they've got a long track record of success. A 2019 report from the Federal Railroad Administration found that accident rates caused by axle and wheel factors have dropped by 81% since 1980 and 59% since 1990 due to the widespread use of these hotbox detectors along train lines. So that technology even though it failed in this one instance, has obviously been quite successful. And again, this is another argument for more automation, the ways in which uh, we've been able to make trains safer by building this technology into not just the physical trains, but the rail lines themselves. And so in response to the derailment in East Palestine, Norfolk Southern has already announced plans to install more hotbox detectors along its routes. The National Transportation Safety Board and the Federal Railroad Administration have indicated that they may implement new rules for hotbox detectors and other automated trackside safety equipment, and they may change how crews are expected to respond to the alarms from those sensors. And those ideas seem like targeted, focused, pretty effective, likely responses to prevent an accident like the one in East Palestine. That's the sort of thing that we should be doing. By contrast, what these members of Congress are proposing sort of strikes me as kind of like the bills that get batted around in the aftermath of mass shootings, because those proposals often aim to place more restrictions on legal and law-abiding gun owners or prohibit cosmetic upgrades that anti-gun activists dislike, but they rarely address the circumstances that actually lead directly to a tragic event, like a mass shooting or a major train derailment. More sensors along the track might have prevented this mess, but an extra union worker in the engine's cab wouldn't have saved the day, and indeed, it didn't. There were extra people there, and it didn't make a difference. So it makes no sense to use this accident as an excuse to pile a costly, unnecessary mandate on American railroads. But that's exactly what Brown and Biden and Vance seem determined to do. For Reason Magazine, I'm Eric Baim. Check out more of our coverage of everything going on in Washington, D.C. and around the country this week at Reason.com. And catch me right back here next week on another edition of American Radio Journal. In the debate over further support for Ukraine as it fights off Russian aggression, 
U.S. national security interests, not political point scoring, should take priority. So says Colin Hanna of Let Freedom Ring USA on this American Radio Journal commentary. When political philosophy conflicts with political partisanship, which should prevail? Stated in the abstract, it seems simple enough. Philosophy should. After all, isn't philosophy a higher-minded basis for decision-making than partisanship? Yet, in the case of continued military aid to Ukraine, the traditional positions of many members of Congress are curiously reversed. Partisanship is trumping philosophy, if you'll excuse my use of the word trumping. Shouldn't it be the other way around? Support for funding the military is typically stronger on the ideological right than on the ideological left. The phrase that many Republicans and conservatives, including this one, embrace almost as an axiom of patriotism is Ronald Reagan's peace through strength. Its close corollary is weakness is provocative. Yet in the case of continued military aid to Ukraine, the tables are curiously turned, at least for some. Until the Russian attack on Ukraine last year, most Republicans, with the notable exception of Rand Paul and his fellow libertarians, would be expected by most observers to be reliable supporters of most military funding and most military action. Democrats in the House who might be opposed if the request for military aid came from a Republican president fell unanimously in line with President Biden's request. Newsweek put it this way, Aid to Ukraine has been a rare bright spot of bipartisanship on Capitol Hill, with Democrats and Republicans largely rallying around a call to help the nation as it faces Russian attack. But in both March and May of last year, 57 Republicans voted against two bills, one for roughly $14 billion and the other for roughly $40 billion in both military and humanitarian aid. That's considerably more than the libertarian contingent, and included such notable conservatives as Jim Jordan, Billy Long, Paul Gosar, Jody Heiss, David Schweikert, Marjorie Taylor Greene, James Comer, and Chip Roy. Had the funding requests come from a Republican president, I doubt that any of those would have sided with the likes of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ilhan Omar, and Rashida Tlaib, as they did in those two cases. Anti-Ukraine funding Republicans should rethink their positions as American support for Ukraine's war effort is once again before the Congress. Perhaps it doesn't actually involve rethinking. Their early votes might not have involved the thinking process at all. They simply wanted to vote against anything that this president of the opposite party proposed. That's hardly an admirable position to take. Florida governor and likely presidential candidate Ron DeSantis stumbled badly as he walked into this quicksand a week ago. He called the war between Russia and Ukraine a mere territorial dispute in which the United States need not take a side. In so doing, he aligned himself with the libertarians who reflexively shy away from foreign military entanglements that become bottomless pits for American taxpayers' money. But that simplistic characterization does not apply to this conflict. This really is a proxy war in which Ukraine carries our proxy 
against Russian encroachment into Europe and the Baltic states and probably beyond, especially if it expands its alliance with China. It is therefore squarely in our national interest to support Ukraine. It's time for congressional and senatorial Republicans, along with Republican presidential candidates, to reorient themselves to a true North defined by political philosophy and rise above petty partisanship. On the issue of providing support to Ukraine, President Biden is on the right side, even if slow and timid. Republicans should support Ukraine's cause and should satisfy their desire to criticize Biden by limiting themselves to criticizing him for being slow and timid. That should be partisan enough to satisfy their political instincts while returning to solid ground philosophically. This has been Colin Hanna of Let Freedom Ring for American Radio Journal. American Radio Journal is heard on public affairs-bonded radio stations all across the country, including WKGM-AM in Smithfield, Virginia, WMRN-FM and WYNT-FM in Marion, Ohio, along with WGGC-FM in Bowling Green, Kentucky. American Radio Journal is produced weekly by the Lincoln Institute of Public Opinion Research, Incorporated. The Lincoln Institute is completely funded through the generosity of individuals, corporations, and philanthropic foundations, which underwrite the costs of this program. Comments and opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Lincoln Institute or of this radio station. Learn more about American Radio Journal and hear expanded versions of some interviews aired on this program, please visit our website, AmericanRadioJournal.com. I'm Loman Henry. Thank you for listening to American Radio Journal. American Radio Journal, lighting the brush fires of freedom. Freedom.